1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9, 25 to 35, and 39 to 40. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Then verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. During our first year of marriage, in which we were making the difficult adjustments to learning how to live together, We were at a marriage enrichment week at our seminary, and I was listening, and one of the professor's wives gave a talk, and she stopped me in my tracks and upset me terribly, because she talked about marriage in a way that I had never conceived before, and it was very troubling to me. I had just gotten married a few months before that, and she said that marriage was really an interlude between periods of singleness for roughly half of those who get married. And even leaving aside the question of divorce, one or the other is probably going to end his or her days single. And and that was very troubling to me because I thought, okay, check that off. I don't have to worry about being alone ever again. 
I was single, now I'm married, and I'll never be single again. But that may not be the case. And that really struck me hard that it could be simply an interlude between periods of singleness. Now, I thought it was a final state. I thought it was ultimate. And I was holding on to it that way. And so it was a rude awakening for me to think of it as something that was merely temporary. Now, we have in this chapter... Paul addressing many different states, marriage being one of those states, but many different states, 10 or 12 different states. Uh, let, me, let me mention some of those to you. Um, and he's talking about these states and also the transition from one of these states to another of these states. He talks about marriage, either between two Christians or between a Christian and an unbeliever. He talks about engagement, and two possibilities for engagement that may end in marriage or it may not end in marriage. He talks about widowhood, remarriage, separation, reconciliation, divorce, circumcision, uncircumcision, slavery, and freedom. All of these states he talks about. And his point, and here's the, here's, I'll cut right to the chase, the, the bottom line for all of these states, Paul says, all of these are temporary. None of these are ultimate, and that's where we're going. Now, this this chapter has a number of challenging uh, interpretive questions about it. As I mentioned last week, this chapter is, uh, I don't know that I've ever seen the game of Jeopardy, but I think you get the answer, and then you have to guess what the question is. Is that how it works? That's sort of how we have to deal with much of Corinthians. We get the answer, but we don't know what the question is. Look at verse 1, and then look at verse 25. And you will find this, I think, five times in 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes, now concerning the matter, now concerning the matter, in verse uh, verse 1, and then if you look at verse 25, now concerning, and what he's doing here is he's taking up topics that the Corinthians had either asked him or had addressed to him in a letter that they had written to him that we don't have, and so we're having to fill in the blanks. And what Paul is doing is responding to these situations. Now, um, this section is notably one of the least authoritative sections of all of Paul's writings. And what he does here is he applies pastoral prudence and love to biblical principles. And he says, in some cases, that we have a command from the Lord on this. Jesus has spoken to this. For example, the question of divorce. We have a word from the Lord. But then there are new situations, and Paul says, I don't have a word from the Lord on this, but I want to help you walk through biblical principles so you can walk wisely if you're in this state or that state or in the transition between them. So, what we're going to do today is look at three of the some 10 or 12 cases that Paul mentions. But, recognizing that the applications he makes can fit to these other cases as well. And we're going to boil it down to three cases in this series we're looking at on on relationships. Uh, The three cases here are currently married people. Second, no longer married people. And third never married people, or not yet married people. And I'll just give you the the instructions. I'll, I'll summarize these, and then we'll talk about these. To the married people, he says, don't live like unmarried people. And to the unmarried people, he says, don't live like married people. And to the not yet married people, he says, you can get married or not. 
So that's that's it. Those are the the summaries of these three instructions to these three groups. So let's let's look at these in more detail. Now, there's a background here that we need to understand that there were many errors in the Corinthian church, theological errors. But there was one that manifested itself in many different areas, both theologically, that is in terms of our beliefs, and also ethically, that is in terms of how we live our lives. And one of the errors was something we could call dualism. Dualism. And a dualism, what it does is it pits two things against each other. And what these dualists were doing was saying spirit is good. Spirit is righteous, spirit is holy, and material things are bad. And you see how that plays out in Corinthians. Some were denying the resurrection of the body. Why? Why bother? If the body's bad, why does it need to be raised? What's the big deal? So this manifested itself in a number of different ways, exalting the spirit and denying the body. Now think about that. Apply that sort of bad doctrine to the question of marriage and you have all sorts of problems. And what was happening is some church members were being led by this error into gross immorality. And you can think about this. If the body doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. You can see how some people would go in that direction. And they were being led in the, in the direction of, of gross immorality. Others were saying, the body's bad, and so we need to beat it down. We need to resist all of its desires. And this was asceticism, rough treatment, denial of the legitimate passions and pleasures of the body. And so there were these two different manifestations in the same church. There were those who were doing whatever they want uh, with their bodies, in the chapter before, going to prostitutes or whatever it might be. And there were others who were saying, no, we need to deny the pleasures of the body even in marriage. Even in marriage. And that's the, 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 the instruction to this first group. So it looks like what they were saying was that, the, that intimacy, even in marriage, is a bad thing that should be avoided. And that was their motto. If you look at verse 1, I think this is, this is becoming the consensus among translators and scholars that what we have in verse 1 is not Paul's opinion, but he's quoting them. He's quoting them. And so he says here, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, and here he quotes them, and literally what they said was, this was, it seems like, one of the mottos of the super spiritual ones in Corinth. And literally what they said was, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And they were saying, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, even if they're married to each other. And that's how far they were going with this. Now, Paul responds to this, and he affirms the goodness of intimacy within marriage. And he gives four arguments in favor of it. Verse 2, because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the first thing he says is, this is God's solution, folks. We have these desires, we have these pleasures. Well, God has said, you can fulfill those within marriage. And God has given you marriage so that you can be fulfilled in these desires. Now, some people accuse Paul of having a low view of marriage. And I read it and I say, low? I say, this is very realistic. This makes a whole lot of sense. We've already seen how high of you he has in Ephesians. Christ and the church. 
That's what marriage pictures. But he's being very realistic here and saying, you have these desires. These are good desires. God has given you a forum in which to enjoy those. And so take advantage of that forum. Now, he then also says in verse 2, I want you to see how mutual this is. How mutual. He says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so this is, this is mutual here. And this is, uh, this is very different from how in Paul's day uh, people would have seen intimacy in marriage. Uh, many in his society would have seen it as uh, the, the wife's duty and the husband's pleasure. And Paul's saying, no, this is, this is even here. The, 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 the whole idea of marriage is so that both can be satisfied and fulfilled. And then he says, still even, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so, what he says here, it is a mutual duty, a mutual obligation in marriage to satisfy each other. Now, um, we don't want to read this in an abusive way. We don't want to read this as, you owe me, but rather, I owe you. That's the mentality we should have here. That it's, it's the loving mentality. It's thinking of the other and saying, I have something that you need. I give that to you according to your needs. And the final thing he says is, this is normal. This is normal in marriage. And if you want to break the norm, then just do it for a little while. Because if you do it for a long time, that can cause temptation and problems. And so here he gives some pastoral counsel. Verse 5, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. The concession is the abstinence. He's saying if you want to fast for a little while... Uh, mutual agreement, that's fine. That's my concession. But that's as far as I'm going to go. Just for a while, and then come back together again. That's the norm within marriage. Now, in verse 7, he goes on, and he does say that he he preferred the unmarried state. We think that probably the, the ascetics, the super spiritual ones, were thinking that Paul would agree with them. When they say, Paul, this is our motto, it's good for a man never to touch a woman, even in marriage. Don't you agree, Paul? You're single, aren't you? You're committed to being single. And Paul says, no, um, I like my state. I'm very happy with my state. Paul may have been never married. He may have been widowed. Or he may have been divorced. His wife might have left him when he became a Christian. We don't know. But he was committed to being single. But Paul says, I have a gift for that, folks. This, this is a question of gifting. This is not a question of a superior state. And by the way, when you look at the history of the church, sometimes marriage is exalted as the superior state, which makes unmarried people feel like second-class citizens. And then in other times of church history, the unmarried state is exalted as the superior position, which makes married people feel like they're doing something less uh, less uh, appropriate than the unmarried people. And Paul says, look, I prefer, and I really wish everybody could do what I do. Look at verse verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, of course, there's there's some exaggeration there, right? Paul wasn't wishing for the, for the end of the, the human race. 
um, which would be if we took this completely literally. But he's saying this is a good thing and I'm wishing this for other people. But then he says this, each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And what's he saying here? There's no gift of singleness per se, but there is a gift of celibacy. That is to say, the ability to live in an unmarried state and be content doing that and not be inordinately tempted to go in another direction. Paul says, I can do that. I have a gift for that. But if that's not your gift, well then, marry. And that's perfectly fine. And enjoy intimacy in marriage. That's what it's for. So, um, for those who do not have this gift, and in my estimation, in my experience, I find that very few do. That's my experience. I find that very few uh, Christians are gifted in this way to say, no, I'm fine, either way, no big deal. I can, I can be fine without marriage. For, for the majority, in my view, marital intimacy is the norm and should be pursued. Should be pursued. Now, um, that's easier said than done. And unfortunately, it's becoming increasingly difficult in our society for for a number of reasons, not all of which do I understand. But we can see that in the United States, over the decades, more and more and more persons are living alone. Many of them voluntarily and many of them involuntarily. They would really rather not live alone. If you look at the statistics back in 1960, 13% of the United States lived by themselves. In 1980, 23%. And now in 2018, it was up to 28%. And so this is a real challenge. And, And there are two categories that are living alone more. That is the younger, who are not yet married, and many of whom would like to be. And then there are those who are the once married, but not any longer. And of course, as we're living longer and longer, that category has grown significantly as well. But there is encouragement here. If this is not your gift of celibacy, then pursuing marriage is a good thing, as difficult and as challenging as that might be in our context. That's the first instruction. The second instruction is to unmarried people and saying, don't act like you're a married person. So to the married people, don't act like unmarried people practicing abstinence. Unmarried people don't act like married people practicing intimacy. And so he says, don't do either of these things. Now, Paul commended in verse uh, verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and the widows. Now, there is some discussion about who these unmarried are, because why would he have to say widows when he already said unmarried? So there is a possibility that he's using unmarried to refer to the men and widows to refer to the women. So it may be that this section is about widowers and about widows. But however that might be, he is saying, that's a good state. If you're in a, in a no longer married state, that's good. He says, verse 8, to the unmarried, to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. That's good. But then once again, he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. The same instruction here. They should marry. This is a legitimate thing to pursue. And then he gives an explanation for it is better to marry than our, and our translation says, than to burn with passion. And there's some discussion here because the text simply says it's better to marry than to burn. 
And he doesn't say what this burning is, and there are two possibilities. They've spelled it out for us here, one of the possibilities, than to burn with unsatisfied passion. It's better to marry and to have a, a legitimate expression for that. Another option is, it's better to marry than to burn in hell. And that fits, uh, maybe not exactly this paragraph so well, but it fits First Corinthians Because in chapter 6, he's already said that the immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. So however that might be, this is a, this is either a, a piece of a very, a very wise counsel uh, for those who are, are passionate and would like to fulfill those passions. He says, well, get married. It's also possibly a very stern warning to those who would practice intimacy outside the confines of marriage. He says, you are putting yourself in a very dangerous situation if this is your lifestyle. Now, what we have, what we have up to this point are two legitimate Christian practices, and we have liberty within these two areas. The first one is marriage with intimacy, or the other one is singleness with Abstinence. Those are the two options for Christians. And there are also two forbidden practices, and then a third that is very difficult. Not forbidden, but difficult for those who are in it. The forbidden practices are voluntary, that is sustained voluntary abstinence within marriage, and the other is intimacy outside of marriage, physical intimacy outside of marriage. Those are forbidden. The third case is not forbidden, but it's very difficult, and that is being in an unmarried state without the gift of celibacy. And that's the, that's the very difficult state that, that many find themselves in uh, these days. Now, those are the first two situations. Those who are currently married, those who are not currently married or uh, were, are not, no longer married, that is. And then the, the other case we're going to look at is uh, are those who are never married. If you look at verse 25, and here the text has, has translated this probably correctly, um, or interpreted it rather, it says, verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, in our language we would say the engaged, it's actually the word, it's just simply the, it says virgins. Now concerning virgins. And it, it looks like they were, they were engaged virgins, but that's, that's an interpretation. So whenever you see that here, betrothed, the word is simply virgins. Now, concerning the betrothed, what does Paul say here? I, here you see his prudence. Uh, I have no command from the Lord. The Lord did not give me a command on this. We, we search in vain to find a specific command, he says. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And then verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And then he gives examples. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So he says, in light of the present distress. Now, you can imagine that there is a lot of head scratching about what was the present distress. Distress, And the answer is, we don't know what the present distress was, either in Corinth, or maybe in all of Greece, or in maybe in all through the Roman Empire. We can imagine certain things, uh, such as persecution, famine, um, uh, economic hardship, 
disease. You can imagine all sorts of things, but we don't really know. But there was something acute, something severe going on. And Paul was saying, if you are not yet married, and, and probably if you're engaged to be married, and he speaks here to the, to the virgins, or about the virgin, then later he speaks to their fathers, he says, it may be a good idea not to get married in this situation. It really is a complicated time to be getting married married, and to be making big life changes. Now, even in spite of that, in verse 28 he says, but if you want to do it, go ahead. Go ahead, verse 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. We can think of all sorts of scenarios, can't we? We're in a worldwide pandemic now, but it's not the worst pandemic our world has seen. If you look at look at history, you find the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague that was, was pandemic and then endemic in Europe that just swept through in waves and, and vast numbers would die from that. And you can go back a, a hundred years as well and find the, the Spanish flu and how devastating that was. Uh, that's an example. You might think, well, maybe not the best time to be, to be getting married. Or you can think of famine. Or you can think of persecution. I, I think often, and I pray for Pastor Wang Yi. We haven't prayed for him publicly lately, but he's serving a nine-year prison sentence in China for his faith and for his, his preaching boldly and his evangelistic activity and his, his teaching ministry. And every day, every day that Wang, Pastor Wang Yi spends in prison, I guarantee that he is thinking about two persons in particular. He's thinking about his wife and he's thinking about his son. Now, that would be a lot less burdensome to him if he weren't, didn't carry the responsibility for them as well. Or going off to war. Going off to war, we see scenes of the young men going off to World War II and getting married uh, a day or two before they were shipped out. Well, that's a difficult time to be getting married, but Paul says, if you want to, that's fine. That's fine, but just realize that you are adding burdens to your life, particularly in this sort of situation. Or you can think of economic depression or famine. A Christian husband who is... Who is who is dedicated not to steal, but now he has not only his own mouth to feed, but he has a, a wife and children. And you see the, the kind of moral quandary that, that a Christian husband and, and father might be in in some sort of a very distressing situation. Paul says, that's okay. If you want to get married in this sort of situation, go ahead. And we've seen a number of marriages take place in, during this pandemic, haven't we? And Paul says, great, that's wonderful. Go ahead, you're free to do that, but just realize... The, the complicating factors here. And then he takes this to another level. In verse, in verse uh, uh, 29, he says, This is what I mean. And here he ramps it up from whatever the present distress in Corinth was, and in the Roman Empire perhaps. He says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And what it looks like he's doing, he, he is... He is jumping from the present distress to the always present distress between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. 
And so here he's expanding his horizons and our horizons, and he's saying, I'm not just talking about local distress here, I'm talking about a bigger distress, a distress with which the whole world must deal and in which Christians always live, and that is the fact that the time is very, very short. The clock is already ticking, it's, the countdown has already started. And he says, in light of that fact, he says, we need to live. We need to live constantly in light of that fact. And he, he, he talks about various states here. Verse 29, from now on, in light of the fact that, that this is winding down, that this is coming to an end, and he says soon, he says in light of that fact, he says, those who have wives should live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, Paul's not contradicting himself, is he? Because on the one hand, he said, married people, you have these obligations to each other. If you're married, you need to fulfill this. And then he says, married people should live as if they weren't married. Well, what's he saying? He's saying whatever state we might be in, whatever things we might have, whatever businesses we might have, whatever dealings we have in the world, we need to hold them very, very loosely because all of these things, all of these states, all of these possessions, all of these things in which we're investing now are going to pass away. In fact, they're already passing away. And we as Christians need to live in light of the the temporality, the temporariness of all of our states and everything that we have. And then, and then, um, then he finally gets to his preference for the single life, and he explains it to us. Verses 32 to 35. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he talks about some good anxieties. I want you to be free from the bad anxieties. And then I want you to be Anxious about good things. Well, the unmarried Christian. What can the unmarried man do? The unmarried Christian man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So the unmarried man, Christian man, gets up in the morning and looks at his agenda and says, what do I need to do today? And there's one point on the agenda. Please the Lord. That's it. Whatever you do today, please the Lord. That's your agenda. But, verse 33, the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. Now, it's not saying that those interests shouldn't be divided. It's saying that they are divided. They should be divided. Now, the married man gets up in the morning, looks at his agenda, and it has two points on it. Please the Lord and please your wife. And that second one is a good thing. That's what married men should do. This is not a bad thing. This is a responsibility. Please the Lord and please your wife. The same with the women. It says, And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, just as she should. That's her responsibility. But her life has gotten much more complicated by having a two-point Agenda, And sometimes, sometimes these, these agenda points, sometimes these two duties, these responsibilities feel or perhaps are in conflict with each other. When I was a young man, unmarried, and was a new Christian, and I began reading missionary biographies, I was enthralled with these missionaries. 
I thought these were the most amazing people that had ever walked the face of the earth, and maybe they were, but I was not yet married. And so as I read about these men, I thought, these men are amazing, they're incredible, their faith, their willingness to lay down everything, to sacrifice everything. And now as a married man, and as a a father, and as a missionary, I've gone back and I've looked at some of their lives, and I've become more troubled. Because in one case, one of my missionary heroes took his wife across the globe, somewhat against her will, and she went insane. And uh, another missionary opened up a vast portion of a continent for the gospel. But at the same time, he, he had to send his wife back to England, where she raised the kids without him. And when he came home after years, his children hardly knew him. And, and other missionaries who, who went through multiple wives because they had to bury them in the foreign land or bury them on the ship or at sea after they had contracted some illness or died. Or others who, who left their wives widowed because sometimes, looking at the perspective now, sometimes the men seem to be rash and to be reckless and they, they put themselves in danger that wasn't necessarily necessary for the advance of the gospel and they left left their children without a father, and they left their wives without a husband. And now I say, oh, I get Paul. I see what he's talking about here. Could Paul have done what Paul did if he took along a wife and children? Could Paul have evangelized Asia Minor and then gone into to Europe and evangelized cities there? Could Paul have, have, have done what he had done, being in prison so often, being beaten, being, being shipwrecked? being arrested, being driven from one city to another with, without food, without sleep? Could Paul have done that and fulfilled his responsibilities to his wife and children? And I say, no. And that's why Paul said, I prefer my state. This is my calling. I'm able to do things because I have a one-point agenda and I commend this to you as well. This is a wonderful life. This is a beautiful life to have a one-point agenda, to be undivided and to please the Lord. But if that's not your calling, then embrace that two-point agenda that you have and fulfill that two-point agenda and realize it's a good thing, but it's a more complicated thing as well. Now, if you are unmarried and you would like to be married, the best preparation, the best preparation for marriage is what Paul says here. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you. If you want to get married, get married. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What's the best thing that an unmarried person can do? to prepare for marriage, to take advantage of an undivided agenda to serve the Lord and serve others. Now, why is that? Why is that the best preparation for marriage? Because when you get into marriage, you will find that it's all about service. And the single person who has indulged himself or herself in the single life 
serving himself or serving herself will have a very rough adjustment coming into marriage. But the, if the, the unmarried person has devoted himself or herself to service to God and service to others, then coming into marriage will be a natural step because it will be serving his wife or serving her husband. Now, let's try to summarize all this for all of us in whatever state we might be, never married, married, widowed, divorced, remarried. These are the lessons, these are the takeaways of this chapter. The first one is this. No state is the superior one. No state is better than the other. Each one has its advantages and its disadvantages. And that's important to recognize. Because sometimes, if we're in one state, we see only the advantages of the other and not the disadvantages. I've talked to unmarried people who who just think everything will be fine if only they can be married. And I've talked to many more married people who think that everything will be fine if only they can dissolve their marriage. You see, each state has its advantages and its disadvantages. The second thing is this. If you are dissatisfied with your current state, you are free to try to change it within biblical norms. And along with that, if you do want to change it, don't make up your own rules, but follow the good biblical norms that God has given us. And then another caution, if you want to try to change your state within biblical norms, you may succeed in changing it, or you may not. And you may be more satisfied after you change it, if you can, Or you may not. And the final thing is this. And this is for every Christian. Because every Christian, married, unmarried, no longer married, separated, divorced, reconciled, whatever it might be, all of us, all of us live with the longings and the disappointments that are inherent in this life. You will not find on the planet a completely content unmarried person or a completely content married person because it's not supposed to be that way. We are not there yet. All of this is passing away. And as great as this state or that state might be, there will always be a longing for something better, a longing for something more solid, a longing for something more satisfying and more sure. And I want you to point I want you to, to point you to one verse here. We didn't read it. But in all of this chapter, in all of these states that are passing away, Paul says something that never passes away. At the end of verse twenty three, or beginning of verse twenty three, he says this You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Now comb through this chapter. Home through this chapter and look at all of the states that are temporary, that are passing away, and then hold on to this one thing in this chapter that no one can ever take away from those who believe in Jesus, that you were bought with a price. And no matter what our state might be today, and it may be a different state tomorrow, we don't know. But whatever our state might be, this is the anchor for our souls. 
This is the solid rock about which we sang. This is the firm foundation that we have been bought with a price. We sang this in our hymns today, didn't we? That first song we sang, Higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant through the trial and the change. What? One thing remains. What's that one thing? Your love. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives out on me. On and on and on it goes. It overwhelms and satisfies my soul and I never have to be afraid. Why? One thing remains. One thing remains. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives out on me. In death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. My debt is paid. There's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives out on me. That's the anchor that, that, that connects us to God. That's the one thing that enables us to go through all the transitions of our life that we've been bought with a price and His love will never fail. Let's pray. Our God, indeed, even as we sang, Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. Because we have been bought with a price, our debt is paid. And I pray that Jesus would be enough for us because in the end, He's all we have. I pray that He would be enough right now for our unmarried people. I pray that He would be enough for our married people, for our divorced people, for our widowed people. I pray that Jesus would be enough. And yes, I pray that that as we long to be in a different state, if that's within the norms You've given us, that You would grant those desires. But whether You grant those desires or not, O oh God, I pray that Jesus would be enough for us because He's all we have. And He is enough. And we pray in His name. Amen.